0: These are the true stories of farmers, conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land.
1: This is Ron Cruz. I'm in Denver where today, December 6th, 2016, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Garth Youngberg, one of the true pathfinders, pathmakers in the development and advancement of sustainable and organic agriculture research and public policies. Uh, Garth, the work for which you're uh, probably best known goes back to the 70s and 80s in Washington, D.C., and even before in uh, academia, your work in Missouri uh, in the 70s. But I'd like to go back even further in these interviews, all the way back to your childhood and your upbringing. Really, what got you interested in agriculture and it put you on a path, particularly on more sustainable and organic type farming?
0: Yeah, well, it, it really started with uh, the fact that I was born on a farm in West Central Illinois mm-hmm. and lived there until uh, we had to move to town, a little town nearby because of my father's illness. But I was 10 or 11 at the time, so I had that first decade of living on a farm. And having been born and raised there, and matter of fact, sitting here to my right, I don't know if the camera can uh, pick it up, but there's a piece of furniture that comes out of that house where I was literally born. So I'm kind of a Lincoln-esque person. (laughs) I was born on the farm in a house in the middle of a snowstorm in January. In Missouri. In Uh, in Illinois, West Central Illinois. Okay. So, you know, you sort of uh, develop a feeling for how agriculture works, even though you're a kid. And after moving to town, uh, I still worked every summer on farms, full three months, full out, so much, you know, uh, so much money and found, which means you got fed as well. So I stayed with agriculture really until I was about 18.
1: And those farms in those days uh, probably set you in a certain direction too. You
0: became accustomed to the look and feel of a mixed crop livestock farm. And it, it it makes an impression, a lasting impression, because even though there are lots of things about that, as you know, that are not terribly tempting or inviting, uh, a lot of hard work, uh, a, lot of, a lot of difficulties, but it's also a very attractive, uh, and looking back sort of bucolic kind of setting, which is very attractive. So that's where it started. The, the background on, on a farm, obviously, and this is true of so many people that ended up doing something in agriculture. Many of them were born on farms. Yes. And yeah. it, it makes an impression. So that's that's it. That's mm-hmm. where it started. And then when you uh,
1: graduated from high school, where did you go? Where did you go
0: then? Uh, Well, I'm not sure we should go through all of this, actually, for a short period of time. I went to a radio school uh, out of high school, a Midwest broadcasting school, and worked at a radio station nearby uh, after that uh, for about a year. And I went to the Army. Uh, When I got out of that, I decided I should go to college. And I went to Western Illinois University. Picked up a bachelor's degree in education and stayed on for a master's degree as well in education. And then I taught for three years at the high school level. Oh, you did? In West Central Illinois. Right. Uh, After that, uh, I began to think high school teaching uh, looked like too much of a challenge for me for the next 40 years. So Mm -hmm. I went back to the University of Illinois and got a PhD in political science with a emphasis on agricultural policy. At that time, political science was changing dramatically uh, to uh, a discipline that really was beginning to concentrate more on quantification, more on uh, understanding behavior, political behavior, not just the structures, but the behavior that's occurring within those structures. And uh, so it was a period of tremendous change in political science and methodology and how you go about knowing something, knowing if something is real, whether it's not, becoming quite scientific in its approach. So that was a bit of a shock to me because I wasn't really anticipating that there would be requirements and statistics and mathematics and those things, which I had very little background in, but I made it through. And because of my background on the farm, and having watched what had happened in agriculture all those years with the switch to more chemicals, uh, I decided to concentrate my public policy work in the field of agriculture. And the first explicit uh, expression of that was in the writing of my PhD dissertation, which dealt with the administration of farm programs. Mm -hmm. You remember back then, and they've changed a lot, but uh, back then they were administered by something called the uh, ASCS Committee System, the Agricultural Stabilization and Conservation Service Committee System. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a system set up by Henry A. Wallace back in the Depression. Mm -hmm. And it was done to give farmers an, an opportunity to participate in the actual decision making at the local level of how farm program benefits were to be decided and distributed. So this is obviously an example of what became known as participatory democracy. And at the time I was in graduate school at Illinois in the late 60s, there was a tremendous amount of of unrest in our country. Mm -hmm. And people were searching for answers to problems of governance and how to get through some of the problems we're having with the war and environmental changes. And students were, that was one of the cries on the campus, participatory democracy, local decision-making. And so because of my interest in agriculture and because we had this 30 or 40-year example of decision-making, participatory decision-making by farmers with farm programs, it seemed to me to be a good idea to Take a look at that. So that was my dissertation. And I can talk about that more if you'd like, but uh, it was a fascinating a fascinating research project to, to see how much actual decision-making was really being left to farmers and how much of it was being made upstairs, but uh, really uh, farmers sort of being symbolic decision-makers, sort of symbolic paraphernalia, to help sell the programs as much as really having a great influence on the policy itself. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I guess I came away with somewhat disillusioned about how simple or how difficult it is to actually realize a participatory decision. It's not easy. Uh, And that experience certainly proved that to me.
1: Well, that swings our earlier conversation off camera where we were talking about the decline of
0: agrarian democracy and Grant McConnell and everything. Of course you would know exactly. that work. Because, in fact, uh, I read that. Those were some of the things I read at that time. I would think so, too. A, we could talk for a long time about that, but I don't think that's the main reason you're yeah, no, here. No, it isn't. But I wanted to, I really like to get the, the sort of frame of where, you're, where you
1: came from. And then you went on to teach in Missouri. yeah.
0: I started at Iowa State University Mm -hmm. and uh, taught political science. I mean, that that was my field. And uh, then from there, I went to Missouri. And somewhere along the way, I guess I should mention that Don Hadwiger and Ross Talbot, who were full professors at Iowa State University when I was there, uh, were both quite interested in agricultural policy. So Mm -hmm. I had some good good buddies uh, Mm -hmm. while I was at Iowa State. But it wasn't until I went to Missouri that I thought it would be useful to start looking at alternative agriculture, because through all this period of time, I had still been monitoring what was happening on farms. Many of my relatives and friends still farmed in my home area in western Illinois. And I could see what was happening, these tremendous changes that, that were beginning to the manifest, and uh, it, it felt to me like things were changing too rapidly and that we weren't necessarily going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. We are kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, yeah, was, was
1: the get big or get out? Get big nuts, and
0: get out. out. Uh, as far as chemicals, don't put it off, put it on. Uh, farmers were being told by their respective land-grant universities. I was the most familiar with Illinois that uh, we can grow monocultural corn forever. It won't be a problem. Maybe i put some soybeans in once in a while, but uh, you know we've got the technology to do this. And farmers uh, were buying it. I mean, it was happening. This was the adoption that was occurring. And it just felt to me, without knowing a great deal about it, it didn't feel right. And I, so I started reading about organic and uh, alternative and, and uh, looking into some of the ideas that were out there about how to do things differently. And it occurred to me, wow, this is sort of the way we did it when I was a kid back on the farm, <laughs> at least in terms of the uh, broad uh, structures, the process, not necessarily the Uh, machinery or the inputs, but the overall notion of diversity, Mm -hmm. crop rotations, uh, having a mixed crop livestock system, recycling things Mm -hmm. on the farm. These were all things that we did Mm -hmm. when I was growing up and that made that initial impression. So when I saw this change happening and I'd been at the University of Illinois and uh, learned some of this there from interactions that I had with People in ag economics and even agronomy, Hmm. you know, the University of Illinois has some of the longest research plots, the moral plots, I think the longest in the United States. And I walked by them every day Hmm. and I could see what their treatments were. And this whole thing was sort of, you know, we're going to be able to do things differently Hmm. and be more productive. And it just didn't feel quite right to me. So when at Missouri, where I had a, I was teaching in a smaller university and felt freer to do the kind of research that I really wanted to do, uh, I decided to take a look at alternative agriculture. And I ended up writing an article, I wrote more than one, but one in particular called The Alternative Agriculture Movement. And this was in 1976, I believe it was published, maybe 77, in the Policy Studies Journal. Hmm. And... Uh, that's the article that someone in Washington got wind of or found out about. And when the department decided to take a look at organic farming in the late 1970s under Berglund, we can talk about that, uh, they wanted a social scientist to be part of the study team. And I guess they looked around and I was the only social scientist that had written about alternative agriculture. So I got a phone call asking if I would come in and be part of that study team. Well, and I would say from what I've read, uh, including some of what you wrote about, uh,
1: that Bob Bergland's had sort of an epiphany with the troubles that were starting to show up with bad uh, overproduction and low prices in agriculture that were really starting to be a plague in uh, those in the mid to late 70s. He looked back. Two farms that were neighbors of his up in northern Minnesota and said, hmm, we ought to take a look at how these organic guys are, are doing
0: this. And that kind of jived with what you Exactly how about. it happened. Uh, Berglund gets what, the lion's share of the credit, all of the credit, really, for the fact that the USDA did this study, right. starting in 1979 with the publication in, in 1980. And it's for the reasons you say, this was a period of tremendous economic distress in American agriculture. Mm -hmm. Remember the late 70s, the tractor cades through Washington? This was an enormously difficult period. Mm -hmm. And farmers were searching for, they began to search for alternatives. You know, this more and more and lower prices just wasn't adding up economically. Mm -hmm. It was a horrible period. And I think this was when the American agriculture movement started right. and, and the protest movements. And it was pretty, uh, pretty rough. right. So Berglund landed right in the middle of that in the Carter administration. Mm-hmm. And uh, the National Inventory Resources Report came out shortly, well, well about that time, mm-hmm. and uh, pointed out the tremendous problems we were beginning to experience with water quality and soil erosion, etc., and he was asked to deal with all of that yeah. at a time of shrinking budgets, too. Yeah. This was also the time of Graham Rudman and the you know, mm-hmm. uh, emphasis on reducing budgets. So what to do? And obviously, if you're Secretary of Agriculture, you look around, you well, what can, can we do, really? And one of the things that he fell upon was the idea of looking at organic agriculture to see if there was a way here for farmers, or at least some farmers to begin to diversify, provide more of their own input costs mm-hmm. and reduce their use on purchased chemicals and other inputs and still make out economically. Mm-hmm. And that fit right into the environmental constraints that were beginning to show right. up. So maybe it was a way to begin to address more than one problem at the same time. Right. So in 1979, he commissioned this study on organic agriculture. Uh, asked Anson Bertrand, who was the head of the Science and Education Administration at that time, to put together a study team. And that's what happened. And that's why I got the phone call to come in for a year to be part of it.
1: So did you more or less like take a sabbatical yeah, and go to, go to Washington? I took a leave of absence. Right. Leave of absence. And that, of course, oh. ultimately
0: led to the seminal report that I think you have a yeah. copy of. <clears throat> this is... <clears throat> this is what ultimately came out of it. Uh, I don't know if you, if others that you've interviewed have held it up. but it's I think you're it. the first one to hold it up and <laughs> refer to it. It was such an important report. Report and, and I, recommendations on on uh, organic ag, organic farming. Right. And uh, as you can see, it uh, it's not a fancy report. No. I don't know what you call this paper that it's packaged in, but <laughs> it's not a slick report. No. It was typed up in Jim Parr's laboratory. Right. Uh, using his own uh, secretarial staff. And uh, uh, one of the reasons that we we did it this way is we wanted to make sure that it wasn't an expensive report. Yeah. Because the resistance to it was incredible, immediate and incredible. Yeah, I really want to talk about that. Before we go there, I'd like to talk a little bit about the
1: study itself. How scientific it was, um, you know, the fact that you went out to something like 69 uh, different uh, case studies, right? Uh, you
0: must have read the report, Ron. You're one of the few <laughs> it was who important to my life, actually.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. We, when we had our first meeting in April of 1979, I was flown in to meet the other members of the study team. And frankly, at the time that I went in there, to meet them, I wasn't convinced that I was going to take a leave of absence and do this hmm. because from the the writing that I had done, I was pretty skeptical that or that USDA could was serious about this. Yeah. They were going to do a bona fide, you know, honest look at this. But as soon as I met uh, Bob Happendick, who had chaired the report, a soil scientist from Pullman, Washington, Jim Parr, who had the biological Uh, research uh, station at uh, Beltsville, Maryland, which Mm -hmm. is the big, humongous ARS research Mm -hmm. facility to this day, Mm -hmm. and several of the other members. And almost instantly, I knew that they were going to do this honestly. Mm -hmm. It was going to be a a scientific look and not a whitewash or not something quick and dirty. And Actually, one of the administrators at that time suggested that off to the side, you guys, just do it quick and dirty. It's okay. This, this can't be serious, you know. Uh-huh. You know, there's a lot of resistance at lower levels of bureaucracy yeah. to the people on top. And right. Berglund was serious, but, you know, how this goes. This two shall
1: pass. This and... too shall pass. <laughs>
0: right. But uh, I was convinced they were they were going to do a good job. They were leading scientists. They had tons of credibility. So that's when I signed on. And that was in the spring of 79. We started in June of 79. And that summer and fall, we did the 69 on-farm case studies all around the country, all uh, 10 production regions. Had a rather uh, comprehensive uh, interview schedule that we all followed with each site. And when possible, we were accompanied by a a, a county extension agent from that area. Not always, but when they were be willing to go, we went mm-hmm. with them. And uh, really, the, that's why the study came out the way it did, I think, it was a reasonably positive report. And the then you
1: went to Europe and Japan.
0: We also Some did of you that. did, at least, yes. right?
1: To also look at more in countries that have been having probably more established uh, exactly. organic. So
0: three years. of us went to, uh, three or four of us uh, did a tour of organic farms in Europe.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Switzerland, Germany, and England. Mm -hmm. And then one member of the team went to Japan. Ah. But uh, mostly it was U.S. based. And it's a report that we characterize as being cautiously optimistic. We didn't come back and say, wow, this is the answer to all of our problems in agriculture. Let's throw everything else out and just do this. That's not what the report's about at all. But it did conclude after looking at these studies and seeing how successful these producers were, that this is something that deserved a look, Mm -hmm. uh, some research dollars and some education dollars. So the report includes 10 pages of research and education recommendations. So with that finished and the report published in 1980, I was asked to stay on and follow up to the report to coordinate a research and education follow-up to the report. So that's why I ended up staying, where initially I just planned to go there for one year and help write the report.
1: Well, and then the report, I think, was only out about four months before the administration changed, and Ronald Reagan came in and brought in John Block.
0: That's right. From Uh, Illinois. You're quite an historian, Ron. That's exactly (laughs) how it was. This was published in... July, I think, of 1980, and of course, the election was in November. And the uh, gentleman that uh, Ronald Reagan appointed, John Block, a corn and soybean hog farmer from Illinois, had a totally different view of organic agriculture than had Bob Bergland. So it wasn't long until signals began to come down that uh, this uh, report uh, didn't have much of a, much of a future. Uh, I don't remember the dates, but uh, uh, John Block did make a speech at a major gathering of uh, conventional agriculturalists that there would be no follow-up to this so-called dead-end organic farming report that Berglund had put out. Mm-hmm. So uh, fairly early on, I felt that I sort of had a target on my back because I was the organic farming coordinator. And here's the secretary of agriculture saying... This is a dead end. Uh, so and it, it turned out to be that, at mm-hmm. least for a while. I understand when reading uh, earlier preparation
1: for, for, for this, they, they cut back your organic work by half, and then a year or so later, they
0: actually XD out uh, entirely, right? The, the position was eliminated. Yeah. Uh, in what, what the government calls a reduction in force. Yeah. The net result for me was that I had two weeks to depart the... Bellsville campus and find some other activity. Yes, and before we go on
1: to that activity, which I really want to go to, you know, I've talked to other people. I'm thinking particularly of Roger Blowbaum, who's been so involved and continues to be involved in organic agriculture. There's no more adamant ally for organics than than Roger. And he talked about how important the report was and how important it was to make sure that they all didn't get destroyed or buried somewhere and how some boxes managed to get out to him and other people to right. keep, and that those reports continued to be quietly disseminated for many years, even yeah. though they were, not, that was not the approach that the yes. administration at that time wanted.
0: That's all true. Uh, I've forgotten the particulars, but there was an effort to make sure that the, the report made it outside of the Bellsville Research Station and, and various people had had copies. But I think maybe I should mention that I didn't depart instantly. I was there for another two years, maybe Mm -hmm. even almost two and a half, Mm -hmm. uh, before uh, I was asked to leave. And during that time, the reaction to this report was truly astounding. It was overwhelming, really. And we would get requests, you know, 10 10 a day for copies of the report, and eventually it was... uh, translated into seven foreign languages. Wow. It's, it's hard now, sitting here in 19, uh, 2016, to, even though I experienced it, to remember just how much incredible interest there was. Right. So instantly, since I had that label, Organic Farming Coordinator, and I'd been part of the study, I was being asked constantly to go out and speak to different groups, uh, grassroots groups, the. Uh, the fledgling organic farming groups around the country that were getting up and running at that time, uh, and also international audiences. We had delegations come from Japan and uh, all over, wanting to know what this was about. Was the USDA serious? What did it mean for the larger research components within USDA, not only ARS, but the Agricultural Research Service, but the land-grant university system. Was this something that they were gonna take seriously? Was it a flash in the pan? How much was there behind it? And what about the opposition that you could see was beginning to mount Mm -hmm. against it? So there was no end of work to do, just to try to respond to the interest. And that included uh, groups that hadn't necessarily been involved in agriculture before. But who felt that from an environmental standpoint we were going the wrong way in agriculture, but really didn't know what to do to stop the trends that were underway. I the think environmental the Audubon society
1: are, would be one. Pardon? Audubon society. The
0: Audubon Society. Yeah. All of those yeah. there were scores of them. Right and still are to this day. Mm -hmm. But at that time, yes, they had an interest in it, but they weren't sure what it was about. Mm -hmm. They weren't sure if it really was credible, whether it was doable to farm this way. And so there were lots of work involved, uh, working with those groups, speaking to those groups, and trying to uh, reveal what this report said and what the research uh, might suggest could uh, come from it in the future mm-hmm. if adequate resources were put behind it. Right, right. And I think that I'm looking also at some notes here that in,
1: in 81, this book, uh, this report called A Time to Choose came out too. Yes. Which was had an almost similar fate. And it talked yes. about uh, the need for more
0: research in this area. course, A Time to Choose was the major study, again, uh, that was published under uh, the... Uh, impetus of Berglund, right, Bob right. Berglund, and this one dealing with the structure of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Because at the same, this is a little bit complicated, it's hard to knit this together, but at the same time, uh, it was becoming obvious that we were having problems with the environment and water quality and soil erosion. There was also the problem of the loss of the family farm, and that connected with these economic issues that we talked about just a few minutes ago. Right. right. So what to do about the structure of agriculture, how to make sure that we had some kind of a structure that included family farms and mid-sized farms, and not just switch entirely Mm -hmm. to humongous large corporate type enterprises. So that was another big big issue, the sort Mm -hmm. of environmental side, which this report began to address to some degree, and then a time to choose, which was meant to address the structural problems in agriculture.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Good. Well, and then,
1: as you said, that you you stayed on in USDA for as long as you could. But when when that clearly was done, you went on to uh, start an institute, right? That's right. You picked yes. it up yeah. uh, with some support from philanthropy, I believe. Yes,
0: absolutely. I'd like to talk a little bit about that, if you will. Happy to. Now, the... Uh, the moment that this happened was in September of uh, 1982, I guess it was. Well, I'd been an academic, but it's kind of hard to get an academic job in September. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> so what was I going to do? And I I believed in this. I thought it was important to keep it going. It seemed to be there with some momentum, a lot of interest around the country. And uh, so I was able to Start a nonprofit of 501c3, primarily with the help of a woman named Jean Douglas. Who happens to be the daughter of? Henry A. Wallace. Yes. <laughs> That's right. And uh, this should be emphasized since this is kind of for an archive that without Jean Wallace Douglas, I never would have been able to start the Institute. It mm-hmm. uh, just was essential to have that seed money. Yeah. It was still risky. It still was a touch-and-go for a long time. In fact, it was touch-and-go the whole 17 or 18 years that we did it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But uh, Because as you know, there isn't a ton of of foundation support for agriculture. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there was virtually none. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you looked at the foundation directory at that time and and tried to find uh, Foundations that were supporting agriculture even had the word agriculture in their purposes. It was pretty difficult to find any. Right. So Gene's Foundation, the Wallace Genetic Foundation, was critical in terms of getting this started. And then with that, then we were able to branch out a little bit and sort of piece together something. But you know, for the first I think uh, three years, this was a two-person institute. And what were you trying to do with the Institute exactly? What what was your mission as it were? My experience of having been the coordinator for three years, I guess, traveling to scores of land-grant universities, giving speeches all over the country, really. uh, I had been fortunate to perceive or know that there were lots of scientists on these land-grant university campuses who believed we were going overboard with chemicals and monocultural mm-hmm. agriculture and concentration in animal production and so forth. They just they just felt it. Mm-hmm. Many of them grew up on farms like I grew up on. Sure. So it was easy for, you know, to be sort of find these people and relate to them and they could relate to what we were trying to do. So I knew that the base of of science, the potential for scientific support was out there. But at that time, this whole uh, issue of organic agriculture was so suspect in the conventional community uh, that most of these scientists were still in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> they just Absolutely. didn't dare come out. Right. So I would go someplace, and I've been to the University of Minnesota several times and uh, where you're from now, and where this archive is being created, mm-hmm. uh, but and many many other places. And always after the talk, there would usually be a pr- pretty good audience for the for the talk, because a lot of people there. Who is this weirdo coming out here talking about yeah. organic farming? You know. Right. But then after the talk, most of them would leave. But there'd always be a handful come up, and they would want to say, you know, we're we're interested in this, and we we if we could get some money, we would start some trials or we'd do something. Mm-hmm. So. Because of the USDA experience, I was pretty confident that if we could get an institute started that looked at the science and concentrated on the science, that maybe we could make it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that was the emphasis from the beginning and really throughout. So I, I also that,
1: yeah hold it up there. well
0: yeah I could because some people viewing this won't remember it, but we were able to start this journal. Uh, I think this this is the first issue. It was published in the winter of 1986. And this this was our our main, uh, really our main focus, was to try to uh, provide an outlet for peer-reviewed research on alternative, low-energy, organic, sustainable type systems. Call them what you will. But we chose to call this journal, in fact, our first institute was called the Institute for Alternative Agriculture. Mm because we thought that was a good umbrella term mm-hmm. to include organic, which we certainly supported. And, but, but other approaches mm-hmm. that, that like to uh, march under different titles and different symbols and so on. So that was why we chose this. And, and it's kind of interesting, I don't know if you have time for this, but uh, in this first issue, I actually wrote a, the initial uh, article called Why Another Journal? Mm-hmm. And can't go into it here, but it was, I tried to explain that we were sort of on the cusp of something here. This was kind of a turning point. And we needed this journal so that bona fide scientists, PhD scientists, good agronomists, entomologists, the whole spectrum would have a place to publish their work if they wanted to go in this direction. And also, we make a big point out of the fact that this is an interdisciplinary journal
1: mm-hmm.
0: because this was stressed in our initial report to, from the USDA that in order to understand these organic systems, you had to have interdisciplinary teams, interdisciplinary work. Because no one, the very nature of the systems, the way the interactions, the biochemical interactions, and the exactly. economics and all the rest, marketing and so on required interdisciplinary research. So and just to emphasize was a that for I make,
1: that I remember, you know, I was working with the Land Stewardship Project in Minnesota at that time, which was one of the groups that popped up and that's where we, we first connected. And I remember that's coming out very well and how important it was that it was this referee journal. I mean, it could, yeah. it could survive attacks because it was so clearly uh, yeah. peer reviewed and, and refereed. Yeah. And that was so important. And the idea of interdisciplinary was so important too. And that was one of the difficulties that faced in this. So much of the research, as you know better than I, was uh, done with this reductionist view of focusing in on one crop or one part of one crop. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's the way you grew and thrived in the land grant system for the most part. So finding some people that were willing to look at it
0: interdisciplinarily was a very, a very significant... Uh, even though they may have believed this and wanted to do it, it, it's not simple to do it. No. And it still isn't simple. Even no. now, what, 35 years later, 36 no. years later, whatever it is, there are still difficulties in, in having uh, getting enough funding for truly interdisciplinary programs, even if they're not organic, just anything interdisciplinary, because right. it changes the way... Research is planned and administered, and it's quite complicated. Right. And you have scientists that have PhDs in plant pathology, that's what they know. They know plant pathology. Mm-hmm. And they want to publish in plant pathology. Mm-hmm. And there are journals for that. So, to get those kinds of folks to say, well, let's put a team together and look for plant pathology and agronomy and, you know, this plant breeding and everything. To look at things in a holistic way is very, very difficult. Yeah. Uh, part of it's bureaucratic; it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a sinister. It's just difficult to make these things happen. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why we started it, and I, I'm happy to say that it survived. It was diff- very difficult, but it did survive. And today, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but sure. uh, when I uh, decided to retire and. I guess 1999, uh, we were able to uh, merge our institute with Winrock International, which was a much bigger nonprofit, and I'm sure most people have heard about it. And we were able to place the journal with the Cambridge University Press, which is the where it's published yet today, and so the journal is still ongoing. Right. So very happy about that. Right, and then that has some international
1: aspects to it, too. Yes.
0: It it gradually evolved to where the work was becoming uh, more international in scope, uh, more international scientists wanted to publish in the journal, and uh, it sort of evolved that way, although it started out initially to be primarily a U.S.-based operation with emphasis on the land grant and ARS scientists or scientists from the Economic Research Service, too. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, they're
1: brought to mind other important things that were going on on, on on the landscape as well, I think about the uh, work of Rodale with what became called the Practical Farmers of Iowa that still goes and doing wonderful work today. Right. Back in the late 80s up through about Robert Rodale's death, I think in 1990, they were doing some very important research yes. and linking into some of what you were doing. Well,
0: that's, that's right. I'm glad you brought Robert Rodale up because you know he deserves uh, much credit for kind of putting this whole issue on the agenda, right? Uh, the problem with Bob Rodale, one of my good friends, uh, the tragic death in an automobile accident in 1990. He was in uh, Moscow, actually, yeah. trying to start uh, the new farm magazine over there in Russia. Yeah. So he was a dogged uh, proponent of this and right. had enormous influence, and he was a great guy. But And I think if he were sitting here today, he'd agree with this, because of the work of his father, J.I. Rodale, Mm -hmm. there was this image that organic farming, uh, Rodale style, was a little bit kooky and a little bit strange. Right. Uh, And so scientists were somewhat standoffish. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bob realized this. And about the time that Bob Berglund was deciding that we should do something, uh, in USDA to you know bring this forward and really take a look at it an honest objective look. Bob Rodale was uh, saying pretty much the same thing mm-hmm. that, uh, you know organic gardening can only go so far if we're going to get this to the farm level. Right. We've got uh, they started the new farm magazine about that time which was looked at larger operations, but that it also needed to become more scientific as well right right. So one of his important decisions was to hire a a scientist by the name of Dick Harwood, uh, who fully credentialed, you Mm -hmm. know, agronomist, horticulturalist, I think, actually more so. than, But anyway, a fully credentialed scientist Mm -hmm. to come to uh, the Rodale uh, Research Center and set up these uh, farm trials. And it was done properly, according to all the scientific, uh, you know, requirements. And uh, that really opened up the eyes of some folks at USDA. Mm -hmm. No question about it. At about this same time.
1: And the way it was extended, you might say, through the work of uh, things like the practical farmers and to a certain extent land stewardship project to where they would have these open field days where farmers could come. Yes, And so it had influence on the way... Farmers were. Uh, that was another one job. of the
0: threads that uh, was so important. It, it wasn't just science, uh, just the land-grant folks doing research, but getting farmers involved. And you know, one of the more effective groups, well, there were a lot of them, and they all became very effective. But in the mid-'80s, the practical farmers of Iowa made quite a, an impression on right. folks.
1: Right.
0: And there's a story behind this that, uh, I don't know, we oh, have yeah. time constraints, but... Uh, The decision to call it the Practical Farmers of Iowa Mm -hmm. was an elaborate one that involved a lot of discussion. Mm -hmm. And I know they talked about different words. But uh, at that time, the word organic especially was persona non grata in the conventional community. Mm -hmm. But so were other words. I mean, there wasn't a word that... That they wanted to accept. I know
1: Rodale. Excuse me. Tried regenerative. That's yes. still a good word.
0: That was hear, that was fun. Bob's contribution. That <clears throat> we, we needed a regenerative right. agriculture. Uh, some people uh, felt that uh, sustainable was the best word, and I guess it sort of is the survivor primarily yeah. in the long run. <laughs> Organic and sustainable are the two main surviving terms, I believe. Seems like it. Uh, Many people still talk about alternative agriculture, too, I think, though. Uh, I don't have pride of ownership there by any means, but that's the one that we felt was the least uh, offensive to conventional agriculture. Because we weren't saying, uh, you know, it has to be this way or that conventional can't be regenerative or it can't be this. But let's just look at alternatives. That was our pitch. Alternative agriculture. What, what would work and what wouldn't? Right. But uh, the Practical Farmers of Iowa, to get back to that, was a difficult decision. Dick Thompson was a good friend of mine. He was on our board for a while, and he Farmer. was one of the movers there. They decided to just call it that. It's just practical agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, but they were, they were really talking about organic technologies and other, yeah. you know, those traditional uh, methods uh, to, of farming right so yes so the the work
1: on the ground and in academia and the good research is happening um, i know looking back and reading the one of the, the papers that you were um, that you wrote the i want to make sure that people know about that you were the lead author along with suzanne uh, demuth uh, in 2013 it's called the organic agriculture in the united states a 30-year retrospective and it's, it's still available and it's a it's a It's a wonderful article, but one of the things it mentions is that during that Reagan era, those eight years from the, uh, say, from the 81 through the end of the 80s, from from a policy, for the most part, and uh, from the policy standpoint and uh, what's going on in Capitol Hill, not too much was happening. But then around uh, 89 and 90, things started picking up. And uh, with the things like the Organic Foods Production Act, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you uh, remember yes. that era that ultimately then kind of brought organic back into the dialogue around a particular thing of this is a food we're talking about when we talk mm-hmm. about organics. Yeah. I, I thought you, I just wanted to bring that yeah,
0: up. Yeah, we, we do cover that in the, in that article. Right. Which I co-authored with Suzanne Demuth, yes, who is a tremendous researcher and a Colleague, it's a great she article. Lived, she lives in, in New York now, but uh, we collaborated. You can do that these days with modern technology. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you could say that uh, the policy front, we've been talking a lot about agronomy and right. farm research and so on, but uh, policy was another battle. Yeah. And so when, this, when the Organic Farming Report was published in 1980... As I've already mentioned, there was a tremendous amount of interest. Right. Much positive interest, but also much negative interest. Part of the positive interest came from Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. And the the person there that jumped on this first was a congressman from Oregon named Jim Weaver. Oh, yes. And he right away was sort of one of the moving forces, perhaps the principal one, and getting one sentence— Uh, inserted into the 1989 Farm Bill. I think it was, am I getting off here? I think it was the
1: 85 Farm Mm -hmm. Bill. Mm -hmm.
0: 1981 Farm Bill, right after the report came out. Okay, all right. One sentence in the 1981 Farm Bill saying that there should be research on organic farming in line with the 1980 USDA report. That's about what it amounted to, one sentence. So that was in 1981 and then in 1982, he came back with another legislative uh, proposal and uh, it, was called the, it was called the Organic Farming Act. Mm-hmm. It's Difficult to recall these things after 30 sure. some yeah. years. It was called the Organic Farming Act and that same year Senator Leahy from Vermont uh, put in a bill called the Innovative Farming Act. Oh, yes. Already we were seeing indications that they didn't want to use the word organic, mm-hmm. not because they didn't like the word, but because they knew how it would affect the conventional side of agriculture. So he called his the Innovative Farming Act, but they were identical bills, and they were based almost entirely on the 1980 report. Well, those two bills went nowhere. Right. So then... Um, Weaver and Leahy together about I think the next year, maybe 83 or 80, 84, they put in something called the uh, Agricultural Productivity Act, mm-hmm. which included, again, most almost entirely the same uh, reasoning, the same language, and that but that's what it was called. It went nowhere. But by 1985, the 1985 Farm Bill, they were able to get some language in that, mm-hmm. which then later on, I don't want to go into too much of this. So I realize I'm overdoing it here oh, a little, no, I think. But that later became the so-called low-input sustainable agriculture program or the LISA program, mm-hmm. which was included in the 1985 Farm Bill. Right. No funding, though, for yeah. that until 1988, I, I believe yeah. it was, yeah. yeah and then the funding was just minuscule. Right. Well, there's a whole history there that we could talk about a long time, but the word low-input sustainable agriculture kind of illustrates how this terminology evolved. We started with organic, then we got to innovative, and then we got to productivity, and eventually we got to low-input sustainable agriculture. Mm -hmm. And of course, the low-input part was meant to reflect sort of organic type technologies, mm-hmm. but uh, this was frowned upon, shall we say, by the conventional agricultural community.
1: Right.
0: Uh, one of the most uh, common phrases was "low input means low output," yeah. and they would have nothing to do with it. So there was a real tug of war there, a real right. fight. And then uh, in ninth uh, by the by the time the 1990 Farm Bill came along though, because at least it did get some funding and right. it did get started and it got started under the leadership of Patrick Madden, who was one of the pioneers yes. of all this and agricultural economist from Penn State who came in to be part of this. He's a good example of what I was saying earlier of these conventional credentialed land grant scientists who wanted to go in a different direction, but there just wasn't any way for them really to do it, right. so Patrick, an economist, uh, stepped out and, uh, and wrote about this and and spoke about it. He became the first administrator of that. Mm-hmm. That and it, it was pretty successful. And once there was some money, it's a funny thing about money. Mm-hmm. If you get some money out there, scientists begin to say, you know, this this makes some sense. Yeah. So. Then we were able to move that forward into the 1990 Farm Bill and the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, the SARA program, which is still ongoing today. Yeah, right. And with, I don't know how much money it's getting now, but much, much more.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Several millions. Right. You may know the figure. I, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's quite a bit. Yes. Still a fraction of the total research right. budget, but a lot more. It's a respectable right. program. Well thought of. Very nice. So that was sort of the, the policy battle. And one thing that's interesting to me about it, is, it sh- is how it shows the difficulty of this word organic and how people just couldn't take it. Right. Even by 1990, they couldn't take organic, so it was sustainable agriculture research and education. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> the folks who wanted to begin growing food had wanted to for a long time under an organic type label and get it into an organic foods marketplace had also made a lot of progress through the 80s. So by 1990, under the leadership, again, of Senator Leahy and his staffer on agriculture, Kathleen Merrigan, another pioneer, um, they uh, introduced uh, a bill, the the Organic Foods Foods Production Production Act. Thank you, Ron, Mm -hmm. thank you very much. And uh, it was made part of that farm bill. And, and then later, uh, with a lot of work, eventually was uh, funded and implemented, I guess, not until 2002. I mean, it yeah, took 12 years the, the to get it what? from there to, to where we actually had an organic label in the marketplace.
1: It took so long to get people to some sort of an agreement on what materials could be allowed and uh you know what really was organic that could be called organic and yeah that just was fought out for a long time it still continues to be a huge that's issue right. the constant struggle to maintain yeah. some purity you might say in the mm-hmm. what's allowed in organics
0: but that's that's exactly right the materials list i think took up a lot of the time of the groups that uh, that uh, stayed with it and uh, eventually came up with these definitions and uh uh, the list so that we could have a program. And I think this was a major problem. initial,
1: initial uh, um, version of the list and, uh, and uh, I think it got, they put it out for public review and it, I think it got the biggest response they'd ever gotten at USDA at the time yeah. and they had to go back and revisit right. it again. And
0: because some conventional folks had inserted some things that the organic people wouldn't, uh, right. could not accept. And I think it was like 200,000 yeah, letters it was huge. or something. It was, it was, was most... an enormous response. Yep. Right. So right. that program uh, did emerge out of the 1990 Farm Bill. Eventually, as we all know, uh, uh, was successful. And uh, all these problems were resolved. And uh, we have an organic label now on the market, which is a major oh, accomplishment. It is. It's, it's certainly uh, an amazing thing when you think back to when we were doing this report in 1979 and had trouble finding legitimate organic farmers, even, right. let alone uh, retail outlets right. that would be selling this food. Right. I remember one of the stops I made in California at a little store, not much bigger than this room, and that was an organic foods outlet then, mm-hmm. 1979. Yeah. And now, of course, we can all stroll around these huge. Whole yeah. Foods markets and other places, and uh, it's, it's just a remarkable change. Right.
1: And uh, what was also happening <clears throat> at the same time that was linked in, in in different ways was an increase in real commitment uh, to conservation and conservation funding, you know, the conservation, um, the uh, conservation reserve program, the wetlands reserve program. Mm-hmm. So uh, while organics were there to Raise a lot of these issues, concerned about organic and sustainable eggs. Sometimes it also led to, uh, not all the way to the organics, but it did lead to increases, I think, and I know it did into conservation practices and research and better conservation Mm -hmm. methods and things like
0: that. that You're you're bringing up an important point and I'm not sure how to thread this into this conversation, but uh, let's go back to the report again. Forgive me, but. At the time we wrote the report, we were not thinking about certified organic agriculture. That wasn't in our minds at all. Right. Uh, we were looking at this as a production system or systems that could be incorporated into conventional farming systems. I think this is really right. an important point. Yeah. Yeah. Our definition, if you remember, was that organic farming is a production system that avoids or largely excludes uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides etc right largely excludes but not exclusively right so our idea and this was going along with what Berglund was thinking how do we how do we incorporate these ideas into conventional agriculture mm-hmm. that's been an important and continuing story down through the years right. the same time that's happening and I, I hope I can stay on this thread that we can come back to it but then the pure organic side, the food side, the farmers that wanted to be certified and sell their products as organically grown for a premium price to an, uh, an ever larger market of consumers who wanted to buy that food. That's one stream. Mm-hmm. This other stream didn't go away. Right. It's still out there. Mm-hmm. And that's the stream that by and large goes under the label of sustainable agriculture mm-hmm. now. So you've sort of got two roads here. Mm-hmm. We talk about this in the article, mm-hmm. that around 1990, this two road thing seemed to emerge, at least in my mind. Mm-hmm. Organic was doing better. It was certified now. The USDA had the program. Can you imagine that? Uh, more and more farmers were knew how to farm this way. More and more consumers were buying the food. So that's all to the good. At the same time, what what are these farmers supposed to do that wanted to lower their input costs, mm-hmm. reduce their use of chemicals, etc. Well, that's where the SARA program came in, and that's what it's still addressing today, the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program. Uh, but it, it seems to me that kind of what we have now in this country as we look out to the future, I think the organic side is going to do very well. And I by that I have to say certified organic. Mm-hmm. But the other road, I think, is running into you know serious uh, obstacles mm-hmm. because there's still these overarching trends of mechanization, concentration, ever larger mm-hmm. farms. That's going on. I, I don't know that that's slowing up. Right. So, so, so these farmers somewhere in between that are benefiting from the SARA program and are farming more environmentally sound and doing things that way. uh, I wonder how they're doing these days. And I mean, I don't know because I'm retired now. I I haven't followed it. But I think that's an, uh, an area that needs to be looked at because is the impetus there to really go to that next level with those farmers? Right. And those folks that are just concerned about the environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because organic, per se, is a very tiny part Mm -hmm. of the overall food system, Mm -hmm. especially if you look at the land involved. So even though organic practices may be the ideal way to go in terms of conservation, soil erosion and all the rest, if it's only being applied to one or two percent of the crop and pasture land in the United States, that's not a very big chunk of the overall picture. So I worry a lot about that. And I yeah. think there are real obstacles to moving that other track forward. Right. And you know what? It's, it's also in this
1: somewhere is the criticism that is there in the organic side or um, of it is that now you can have maybe a farm that's 3,000 acres they manage to fit under the umbrella of uh, organic, but they aren't necessarily meeting those other societal things around family farm concerns and their effect on the communities and things right. like that, that's right. which has been more on the sustainable side.
0: That's right. So
1: they both have to keep working on working yeah. those things through, I think. Yeah. You know? That's true. So that's why the local Vori movement has come along. You know, and know your farmer, know your food. Yes. Uh, have risen from that side
0: of it, which is yeah. also important. Yeah. And that's all story. extremely positive. Right. Uh, I really want to emphasize that. Yeah. I believe that, and I I know you do. But I do worry about what I see across the country generally in agriculture.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: When I drive back to my home state of Illinois in the summer, from the highway at least, all I can see is corn and soybeans. I'd say of the people I've interviewed so far, it's about 20 now, almost
1: everybody expresses something like that when we get towards the maybe the end of our discussion, you know, well, here's our, we made mad real gains, but, you know, looking critically at where we're at, the structure of agriculture and where the big money is and where a lot of the research and everything continues to go is still driving that, what might be called an unsustainable or if you're kind about an industrial vision mm-hmm. for it. And the question is, is how long really can those two exist almost side by side, or can they really? It's really yeah. pretty questionable yeah. whether they can, but that's a real challenge for, the, for going forward.
0: It is, and uh, as much progress as organic per se has made, conventional agriculture, I think, still kind of is not excited about it. No. Uh, they still see it as a niche, right. a little tiny, funny thing off to the side here, and they don't see it as a way to produce a sustainable agriculture. No. And one of the ideas that sort of slipped past us here, I think, is that this word sustainable, what does it mean? Uh, you may know what it means, but I still don't. <laughs> and it bothers me greatly. Uh, so you see situations. Uh, are you familiar with the Leonardo yes. uh, Academy right. and their efforts? Mm. And I'm not sure where they are today, but I know a couple of years ago most of the conventional ag people that they had attracted to that dialogue withdrew from the process Mm -hmm. and afterward explained why that you know as far as they were concerned the folks involved on the organic side were not qualified to talk about a sustainable agriculture Mm -hmm. that this set of technologies there's still that old idea that it's backward looking can't produce sustainable agriculture, can't feed the world, Mm -hmm. can't feed the uh, eight billion people that we're gonna have on this planet by 2050. And I'm sure you know about the efforts that are being made uh, Mm -hmm. by Farm (coughs) Journal and their new foundation to uh, promote approaches to agriculture that can indeed feed the world by 2050, eight billion people. And it's very clear in their literature that they're not talking about alternative agriculture or organic agriculture, none of those words appear. Theirs is the approach, according to them, of a sustainable agriculture, meaning one that can do that. The sort of the definition is feed the world by 2050. And in all of their literature, and believe me, I've looked, especially when we were writing this last article, For any kind of words or indications that they want to incorporate these alternative ideas into that model Mm -hmm. that would really allow us to feed the world by 2050. Mm -hmm. And I don't see it. Mm -hmm. It's all big. It's all commercial. It's all chemicals. It's all these new inputs. It's biotechnology. Those, in their view, are how we're going to feed the world. And it distresses me because, you know, maybe that is the main way to feed the world. I'm not gonna argue that here, but to dismiss all of the uh, potential contributions of small scale farmers, if they had modern technologies and the modern science and the modern marketing, et cetera, that goes along with could make a big contribution. Mm -hmm. And it's sad to me that we don't include all of it. Why does it have to be one or the other? And this has been a battle that I experienced the whole time that I was involved in this full time. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't we try to look for the best set of technologies overall to feed the world, if that's what our goal is? And it obviously has to be one of the goals. Uh, And I'm I'm sad about that. I think that's a a missed opportunity. We still don't have that dialogue. There's still... Now, despite all the conferences, hundreds of conferences and workshops and seminars over the years to try to bring people together, to to look holistically, it still isn't happening as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid you're, I think you're largely right. I think about going back to um, another man I have so much respect for, Marty Strange, who was a co-founder for the Center for Rural Affairs uh, back in the times we were talking about in the 70s and 80s and wrote a book called Family Farming. He talked about how really the the way one should think is not that we must feed the world, but the world must be fed. And you're thinking of it more from that way. You're not thinking of some sort of top-down approach right. but as much as possible, integrating a kind of different value set yes. into the discussion. And Marty was talking about that
0: 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember that very and, uh, well. So, yeah, I, I, I think we still have a battle on our hands. Yes, I think we do too. This has all been
1: very, very interesting. And I think we really covered a lot of very important territory. And I really appreciated this last part of the discussion where you talked about really the challenges that really still are there for us, thanks to all the progress that's been made, but some of the big challenges that still need to be uh, taken on going forward. So thank you for that.
0: Can I just I, uh, hop sure. in? Quick? I think the th- the main uh, ob- obstacles, as far as I'm concerned, have to do with this word "sustainable" and how do we really define it and make it real? Mm-hmm. Because it's just a foot political football now, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. It's no one knows what it means, and if you look, you can look through the literature, you can look through this uh, report that was put out in, in 2010 by the National Research Council, the Board of Agriculture. And you see the definition of sustainable, and these are the best scientists in the country, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't get us very far down the road to knowing what is really sustainable, what are the technologies that are gonna give us a sustainable agriculture. We're still grappling with that. And as long as we don't know, that means the conventional side can put forth its definition with just as much legitimacy as the organic side can, Mm -hmm. because we don't have an agreement. The other obstacle that has to be fought through here is the one of farm structure, which we've mentioned, and the incentives that continue to propel us in this ever larger, more concentrated kind of agriculture. Mm -hmm. And uh, the third one is research. I mean, we started on research yes, and trying to get the research dollars out of a, a Congress that's tied often to commodity interest and specialized research programs is extremely difficult. And you're going in there even as a wheat researcher. And I saw this firsthand when I was at Bellsville. A wheat researcher trying to get wheat research dollars away from a soybean guy, that alone is hard enough mm-hmm. with constrained budgets. And then you come in from some other place and a- asking for interdisciplinary research with all that's involved and the complications of making it work. Very difficult. So I think those three things are serious problems that, that we have to deal well, with. Well, I know the National Sustainable
1: Ag Coalition, which is a really important part of why I'm doing these uh, interviews about how it evolved and the work it's been done. And it wasn't, uh, I think your institute was a member and has definitely been an ally over, over the years. Research continues to be something that's just at the heart of its Absolutely agenda, trying essential. to get
0: those research dollars there. <laughs> And uh, it'll lead to all sorts of wonderful uh changes. And it comes at a time when so much of our society seems to be skeptical of, of researchers. Yeah, Look true. at global warming. Yeah. I mean, it's not real. The scientists are just doing it through gin up research dollars, yeah. right? I mean, I don't believe that. But that's that's a problem that for some reason, society seems to have slipped into a time when science isn't respected uh, and accepted as way it used to be and i think that's extremely unfortunate yeah i do too
1: well as i started to say i would like to go backtrack just a little bit since so much of what i'm trying to accomplish with these interviews is around who are these people that were involved in this were the pioneers and had the nerve and the wherewithal to take on on these challenges um i'm thinking about one of the rewards you got along the way and came along, I understand, at just the right time, was a MacArthur uh, Fellowship back around, what, 1990, 89? Nin- 1988. 88. I remember it well. And uh, how important it was to the Institute. I'd like you yeah. to talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, well, the MacArthur Program is one. Most people are familiar with it. Uh, each year, a certain number of fellowships are awarded. Uh, commonly known as the Genius Grants. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I'll say it. President Company accepted for certain. <laughs> But uh, you don't know you're uh, being considered and suddenly the telephone rings and you're being told that you're going to have this little pot of money. Well, it comes over a five-year period, not all at once. So it was a wonderful thing. Uh, It it gave me a boost personally because at that point we'd been, I guess struggling would be the right word to keep the Institute going. And it came at a time when uh, uh, we were somewhat at a psychologically low point, I think you could say. And it was extremely important to kind of not only give me a boost, but I think the, the institute, the employees that we had at that time, uh, allowed us to kind of take the next step. Because we were still quite small in 1988. I mean, we we're only five years old, I guess, at that yeah. time. Roger Blobom had worked there for a while. And yeah. uh, we had uh, several consultants, but full-time employees were only three. Three, I think, huh. if you can imagine that, yeah. and uh, it allowed us. It gave the uh, employees. It gave me. It gave our board a boost. And it wasn't too long after that that we sort of took the giant leap and uh, decided to create a real bona fide policy studies program. Mm-hmm. And you know, we put out a number of pu- publications, and we were able to ramp up our seminar series. We were able to establish a visiting scholar program. Mm -hmm. We had several professors and researchers come in from land-grant universities and spend some time in Washington to do things that they couldn't do at their home station. Uh, So I think uh, it it was critical. Uh, It just gave everybody a sense that there's somebody out there recognizing agriculture, Uh, a big foundation recognizing Mm -hmm. agriculture, because this was the first Fellow MacArthur Award in the field of agriculture. Oh, it was yes, mm. and people said, "Oh, mm, well, agriculture," you know. And I think some of the environmental groups around Washington uh, were aware of this, and it it lent a certain uh, legitimacy, I think, absolutely to what we were trying to do. Very good. And then on the again, kind of on this personal track, then you stayed with the Institute until when? Uh, I guess. Uh, I left there in uh, about 1999, I think. Okay. Moved to where we're sitting now mm-hmm. in Colorado that year, but I continued to work half-time oh. uh, until I retired uh, when I, uh, another three or four years later. Oh. Uh, and be- but before I left, we were able to merge the Institute with this Winrock International uh, Organization, so the staff yeah, Went over there and continued the work. The journal continued with uh, it being located at uh, Cambridge University, but still it was being handled through there. And I continued to work here on the journal after I moved oh, out here. That's what
1: I thought. So even though you moved to Denver, yes. you set up an office near home or whatever. and I continued to
0: work on the journal and our monthly newsletter and some fundraising for another three or four years. And you did a lot of public speaking. Too. A lot of public speaking, Good. yes. Uh, Also, one of the things that drew me to this area was the fact that right up the mountain here, we have the Keystone Center. And at that time, and I'm not sure what they do now so much, I think they're still doing some of the same things, but one of their big uh, programs was bringing people together, conveying large meetings of 40, 50, 60 people, maybe even more at times. They would bring disparate groups together disparate Mm -hmm. spokespersons to try to come together look at a problem and find some kind of consensus and issue a report so i worked for them part-time for a while after i got here oh did you and that was going to be something that i planned to do for quite a while but they ran into some difficulty around that time and uh, i don't recall the specifics but uh, it just wasn't able to continue very long. Not nearly as long as I'd wanted it to. Oh, I see. Well, I'm,
1: I'm glad you've been finding time now to enjoy your just retirement and doing whatever else you wanted to do, but also appreciated that you stayed in it enough to, uh, for sure, to come up with that excellent paper that I referred to. Thank you. The, it's called Organic Agriculture in the United States a 30 year retrospective. It's easily found on the web.
0: I right. And uh, where was it originally published? It uh, was published in this journal, which is the current iteration of our original journal, the American Journal of Alternative Agriculture. This is what it's called now. Okay. The uh, yeah. uh, Renewable Agriculture and Food Systems. Okay, and that's put out through Winrock? Uh, it's put out by Cambridge by University By Cambridge press. University Press, yeah. yeah. University mm-hmm.
1: Press, okay. I wanted to make sure people could find it if they went looking. The for editor
0: it. now is is Rick Welchers at the Syracuse University, and, and was an employee of ours at the institute <clears> for, <throat> for for several years.
1: Ah, great.
0: The other thing that I wanted to mention before we wrap things up is
1: that one of the things you did not long after you uh, you got your um, MacArthur fellowship um, is that you were interviewed. Um, At that time in the USDA, they had an office called Alternative Farming Systems Information Center, and they had a woman named Jane Gates who knew of your work, Mm -hmm. and she and another woman uh, came together and asked you to be interviewed, and you were interviewed, and it's an excellent interview. Thank you. And I'm going to uh, have a link put on as I'm speaking here so that people can go back and check it out for you covering a lot of the territory we covered today, but
0: speaking Mm -hmm. from. 1991. It was just yeah, Jane McLean was the other co-conspirator right. in that group. Yes. Uh, they had quite an impact yeah. starting that center, and I, I think it's still there. Yeah. yeah, I haven't heard much about it lately, but that just may be something I... I in fact, Suzanne DeMuth, my co-author on this article that you've mentioned, worked there before she came and worked at our institute. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's many very interesting interviews of other pioneers. Right. Uh,
1: like I think of Willie Lockeritz is on there, for example. Mm-hmm. So I urge people to to
0: check that out as well. I should have mentioned Willie Lockeritz when I was talking about our journal because he was our first technical editor. That's... And he's another one of those essential persons yes. in all of this. Right. Going back to his work at Washington University with Barry Commoner and really putting out some of the very first scientific research on productivity and uh, organic systems. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.